0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 23rd, 2015. This is episode 1596 of the Survival Podcast, and this is a long-overdue part two in a series. Over 150 episodes ago, I did a show called Episode 1445, Hunting Deer Part 1, the kit. Part one indicating there'd be at least a part two, and the series is and was planned for three parts. Part two today is scouting and setting up. All the way up to the point of taking that shot, part three will be, okay, I put an arrow through a deer. What do I do now? How do I track it? How do I get it back to my vehicle? How do I field dress it? What do I do with that deer uh, to the point of processing myself or getting it ready for a professional processor to do for me? So why did it take so long? I don't know. I don't know. I really don't remember what happened. I know that uh, when I did it, I planned on doing all three of these pretty close together and uh, I didn't get the second one done, and for long enough, that other things came up and it didn't get done. And today I was trying to think, what do I need to do that I haven't done? And started going through my, some old episodes, found that one, and said, hey, dummy, you never did that. Now, the reason this is a good show to do today is I'm going to cover four seasons of scouting. And what that's going to help you do is take advantage of the summer that you had have ahead of you in the early fall before the season if you want to get out and bow hunt this year. If you're not a hunter and you don't like hunting, you'll probably still enjoy today's show. If you're a hunter but you're probably not going to bow hunt, you'll still probably like today's show. Today's show is going to teach you so much about what it takes to successfully bow hunt deer and how deer behave that I think it will help you uh, to understand a, a segment of, of society, a, a part of this community, that those of us that are archery hunters, uh, at a different level. I think it's always good to understand people uh, that maybe you are not really aware of how you interact with them right now. Anyway, before I get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to HarvestEating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells. His organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis pretty much. Uh, If I'm not reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or the new prime rib stuff, or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome. He also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe in cooking, how to make cooking a life skill, how to cook seasonally and locally. He's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at harvesteating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a question about cooking, you get it into me, and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com. Long-term sponsor, great partner, great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at HarvestEating.com. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, WesternBotanicals.com. I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines. Be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs. Raw herbs and herbal supplements and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you. And if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program, where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them, and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com and if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, with that knocked out so I don't forget again this week, it is Tuesday. That means it's time for the Bob Wells Plant of the Week. Every week, Bob Wells Nursery sends us a plant that you can grow in your own backyard and uh, help improve your food self-sufficiency because they specialize in edible landscaping. Uh, The the one today we have for you are actually a bunch of them, Uh, a family, so to speak, Cold hardy avocados. Varieties include Joey, Lilia, Pancho, Brazos, Mexicola. Uh, now they say cold hardy, but we're talking zones 8 to 10. So these are not super cold hardy. These are, you know, hardier than you would normally expect a true tropical avocado to be. They are medium sized avocados weighing approximately 6 to 10 ounces and are egg shaped. They have excellent rich flavor, known to be heavy producers and require well drained soil. Cold hardy avocado trees are mature. That are mature have withstood temperatures as low as 15 to 18 degrees. So it's about getting them to maturity and protecting them until they get there. Uh, Bob Wells recommends covering the tree the first winter if the temperature drops below freezing. Once the tree has been in the ground for a year and is well rooted, it will then begin to withstand colder temperatures. The older the tree gets, the more cold hardy it becomes. For those of you who live anywhere above Zone 8, we have the Joey Avocado, which is a semi-dwarf variety that you can grow in a container and bring inside during the winter. Find this plant more at BobWellsNursery.com. Bobwell's Well's Nursery specializes in edible landscape plants and trees, including fruit trees, berry plants, vine fruit, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. Find this plant more at BobWellsNursery.com. Um, this is a great idea. I will tell you that my personal attempt to grow avocados here uh, last year did fail. And this spring, I did not bring in new ones. I probably should have. I pretty much did everything wrong when it came to uh, my avocados. I did not cover them. I planted them too late in the season. And uh, I'll tell you what that did. It, they came under extreme stress, heavy, heavy uh pre- pest pressure from grasshoppers. And they probably had no chance to make it through the winter. And it was one of those things I just didn't get to trying to... uh To fix, because I actually didn't think it was worth it at the point that I had accepted, you know, that these plants weren't going to make it. If I had it to do over again, I would actually pick a different location. Uh, a place closer to the house where they could be taken care of and doted on a bit more, a little bit easier to uh, to cover. I put them out in an area where I thought they'd get a lot of winter sun, but it actually made it a very harsh environment for them. So I would try it a little bit differently if I do it again. I would build in rocks as a heat sink, and I'm in that area like, will they make it? Yeah, I don't know. Nobody knows because is it zone 7 or 8? depends on who you ask and when you ask the question. We have winters where we are a zone 7, a true zone 7. We have winters where we're a zone 8. Um, we we have winters some years where we're a zone 8, edging toward 9-ish. We just don't get that cold. It all depends on what the season's like this time around. So if I could get a mild winter, perfect conditions, love on the plant just right, and get that heavy root system established, I think I could do okay with them here. But this is not the place for it with alkaline soils that in some places are two inches deep. So anyway, um, you may have better luck than me with cold-hardy cold hardy avocados. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Of the year being 1596, I have Better Living Through Good Plumbing. I have Necessity Has No Law, The Food Riots of Great Britain. And I have The Second Plague Pandemic, A Major Outbreak in Spain. I'm going to read Necessity Has No Law, The Food Riots of Great Britain. Uh, but it is interesting just to note, that the Black Death that went away is not gone and does come back for several more times. And in this particular uh, outbreak killed a half a million people. It's, it's not gone. Uh, this is a disease that we learned in prior episodes wiped out somewhere between half to three-quarters of the world's population. And there is no doubt that there's potential for something similar, not from that particular disease, because we know how to treat it now, but some other form of virulent disease to do that again. So just something to keep in mind with our preps. Uh, but necessity has no law, the food riots of Great Britain. This is the second year of bad weather and bad harvest in England. The local town councils have been calling for Christian charity, but for the poor it's not enough. The peasants say that necessity has no law, they need food, and they are going to take it. Along the way, they strip everything that isn't nailed down. They even behead farmers, manor managers, and behead the wives and daughters of these men. The food riots are bad, but the harvest yields what it can, and no more. Queen Elizabeth I. writes an open letter to the Lord Mayor of London, saying there are too many Africans in London, and suggests strongly the Lord Mayor deport them back to Africa. A Queen's suggestion is not exactly an order to a Lord Mayor, but it's close. And as I, if I had to say it, the wild weather due to the Little Ice Age, if they had believed burning carbon-based fuels would bring warmer weather, they would have done it. Global cooling is killing millions right now. My take by Alex Schruck, during the Elizabethan era, free will charity was the preferred way to handle the problems of the poor, but it didn't work well since the government closed the monasteries. In modern times, we pass a law for the children that forces us to give charity, but we call it food stamps, or we pay for school food programs. There are some people who need these programs, but my sense is the majority do not. I don't see enough churches and synagogues stepping up to take the place of inefficient government programs. Instead, their membership votes for government to help the poor. There is no merit to me when I vote to force my neighbor to help the poor, Heaven's choir must be crying its eyes out, and Hell's army must be laughing its backside off. You know, my take by this is a little bit different. I, I, I've talked enough about government force and using it to steal other people's stuff to give it to somebody else, and how wrong I think that is. I don't need to go any further. I think it's actually more important that we learn today the lesson of what happens when people don't have food. Let me read a little Uh, A little bit of this again for you. Along the way, they strip everything that isn't nailed down. They even behead farmers, manor managers, and behead the wives and daughters of these men. So when the foods and shorts apply, they kill the people who have, but, and produce the food. Communist, Russia, the Soviet Union will experiment with that little fiasco a few hundred years later in the future. And we will get to that one, I'm sure, eventually in the History Chronicles. But, but, these are normal people, normal people, who probably normally wouldn't have beheaded or killed anyone, but when faced with death from starvation, necessity has no law. This is why we prep. This is what will happen in food shortages. The the reality is human beings have not changed since this time. We are not different people. We live in a different society with different rules and different thoughts. But take away a man's food to the point where he looks at his child and realizes if that child doesn't eat this week, they'll be dead next week, and necessity will have no law. This is why we need to build resiliency in our communities, because you can only do so much with stored MREs and number 10 cans. Anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. And, uh, again, it's about bow hunting. So, again, it's been a long time since I did this uh, first episode. There is a link in today's show notes for you, episode 1445. Um, I'm going to assume most people listening to the show have heard that. It's not necessary, but there's so much I'm not going to talk about today. Like, I'm not going to talk about what kind of bow to choose. I'm not going to talk about all the stuff that should be in your kit. I'm going to assume it's in your kit and talk about it maybe being used at different points and times through here. Uh, I'm not going to tell you the difference between a drag rope and a pull-up rope. Okay, I I, I can't do that. Last time I did the, the first episode, I said it would be a shorter show than number, normal, and I think it went an hour and 45 minutes. Another thing I want to point out because every time I do a show this complex, somebody shows up at the blog and goes, "I can't believe you didn't say blah 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 blah." Okay, I moved to Pennsylvania the summer that I was thirteen years old, and at the end of that summer, I turned fourteen. I got my first bow by mowing grass for my grandparents, my great uncle, etc. Uh, in the in the early summer of that year, I spent every single day practicing with my bow all the way up until archery season, and I killed my first deer with a bow when I was just barely 14 years old. I have been bow hunting one way or another since then. Uh, we are talking uh, well over 30 years at this point in total. There is no way that you could take something this complex and cram it all into an hour or two hours or ten hours. This show is not to cover every stinking thing you do with scouting and setup. It's designed to cover the most important things and the things that people most often make mistakes with. It is This is like baseball. You can read about baseball. You can learn all the rules about baseball. You can watch baseball games. You can study baseball games. You can even go to the batting cage and hit balls. And you can even go out and play catch with somebody and and sort of mess around with it. That's like shooting into hay bales off a roof with archery hunting. But you will never actually develop skill as a baseball player. You'll develop different individual skills, but you'll never develop the ability to look at the batter and say, this guy pulls to the left, right? Or to look at a pitcher and think, hey, he throws weak in his third pitch. You'll never get that ability to read the wind, to read the signs, to know when to just make a change, to realize that this setup looks good, but it's bad, to realize that this setup looks bad, but it's good. You, you, you'll never do any of that until you get out and do it. It is a long lifelong learning process. So please understand that if, if you comment that I can't believe you didn't blah blah, I probably won't respond to you with that disclaimer right up front. All right so let's start out with some reality checks about bow hunting When, when I did the the first episode, I started out with why bow hunting? and without giving a complete rehash just the three big things i said you have longer seasons less hunting pressure and there's nothing else like it let's let's kind of because today we're talking about the nuts and bolts of actually doing it and finding a place and setting up and what have you let's let's caveat those with some of the reality checks first one is it is best to hunt close to home unless you have Uh, like a guided hunting experience you're going on or uh, let's say a farm or a ranch or something like that where someone is going to have everything set up for you and you're taking a trip to hunt, that's different. But if you are going it alone, either on property you own or public property of some sort or property you've obtained permission to hunt on, it is best to hunt close to home because you need to scout, you need to plan, you need to have things previously set up, and and all these things – are true to a degree with rifle hunting, but they are far more true with bow hunting. The next thing is success rates are lower, period. You are less likely to kill a deer with a bow than a gun. On some levels. okay, All things being equal. Because there's less hunting pressure, longer seasons, etc., if you're good and you develop your skill, it can be far more consistent that you take a deer with a bow than a gun. But overall, everything else being equal, it is harder. There are more things that can go wrong. Um, there is just less. I mean, you can't just spot a deer two hundred yards away with a, with a pair of binoculars, lay down, take the 308 out, lay the crosshairs on the shoulders, bam, dead deer. Doesn't work like that with a bow. So you're going to have more chance to fail. It requires time to bow hunt, more time, again, especially if you're going it alone, and it requires patience and more patience. It is it is probably the thing that I've done in my life that requires the most patience of anything that I've ever done. I don't know if I could do anything that required more patience than bow hunting. Um, people and and you, there's no like passing the time with bullshit. And we'll talk about this a little bit more as we get into this today. But you know you can sit in a box blind uh, with a, a setup where you're expecting deer to be a hundred yards away with a rifle and read your Kindle. Okay? Um uh, or mute your phone and play video games or something like that. You can sit in there with a buddy and whisper to each other. It's amazing. It really is that uh in the right setups you can get away with that like they do on Outdoor Channel. Uh, all of that is off the table. It's off the table with bow hunting. If you were a watch bow hunting, you might as well just put a whoopee light and a siren on your ass. And stand up there in the tree with the light blinking and the siren going off because that tick 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 right that you think it's like imperceptible you don't notice it first time you get up there in that tree you're going to be if it's if it's a battery powered tick you'll be pulling the back off and yanking the battery out and if it's a wind up watch you might as well just take you know just leave and go somewhere else go back to the car it is a totally different thing to be a bow hunter than it is to be a rifle hunter with all that said. There's still nothing else like it. You will never experience the true feeling of being the predator with a gun. And you won't... You'll say, well, I do. You won't understand it until you do it with a bow. You just won't. Because there's nothing else like it, so you have nothing else to compare it to. Now, if you've ever hunted... Uh, pigs with a, with dogs and a knife, okay, then there might be, but it 's still a little different that than that way, or you know spears or something, or I know some guys that hunt with like really high powered slingshots, okay, so some of those things may be like it in a way, but they 're all a little bit different, but the gun hunter will never know what it is to be that predator, and they will never know what it is to be part of the ecosystem at the level of an archery hunter. You literally meld in and become part of it that 's the only way you 'll be successful. Unless you're shooting an animal on a game ranch that's fed from hand or something like that. If you're hunting a wild animal like a white-tailed deer that has all of its instincts to stay alive and you have to kill it with a bow, then you are going to have to be part of its environment for for you to be successful. And this is all why I would say, for those of you that are new hunters to get some experience and have some success, and put some meat in the, in, on the table, et cetera. It is, inter- it is a good idea to maybe consider some guided hunts. Don't think that like you're cheating if you do that, uh, especially with a time issue. The biggest reason I don't bow hunt much anymore, I don't have the time. I just don't have the time anymore. I'm running this business, and it always seems like there's something else that comes up that I have to do. Um I'm probably going to try to make some changes next year to make that a little less likely and spend more time hunting and fishing uh starting next year. Just so you know. Anyway, um let's kind of go through the seasons and, and 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 scouting. Now, when I was in sales, right? They said ABC, which doesn't make sense. Always be selling and I guess C spells selling, but I, I I just ABS, right? Always be scouting. When you're driving down the road anywhere near your home, be looking for a place that might be an opportunist place to hunt. This is where the advantages of the archery hunter start to come up, right? So you'll see a place and go, This is like a little wood lot there or whatever. You see a couple deer running through there and you go, Wow, I could hunt there. And you think I can't hunt there with a gun, maybe not. But if you find a whole on that land, many places that you would not be able to hunt with a rifle, you can safely hunt with a bow. And a lot of times people are more likely to let an archery hunter in. So always be scouting. When we get into scouting in winter, some of the big things to be doing and looking for in winter and some of the advantages are, number one, it's really easy a lot of times to find the bedding areas. If you're in the north, you have snow. If deer bed in snow, they melt snow. You'll usually find deer bedding in evergreens uh, in the wintertime up north. They'll be in the pines or, or what have you. And down south a lot of times in cedars and things like that. Even in the south, right, where you don't have as much snow or you don't have any snow, these bedding areas tend to stand out more. And the reason they stand out more is because the woods are opened up. Whether it's, you know, it's scrub thicket or swampland or whatever, all your deciduous trees are dropped completely by winter. So it's a lot easier to identify trails, follow trails, and find bedding areas. And in winter, how far away are you from sitting in a tree and waiting for a deer? You're, you're, you're seven, eight, nine months away, depending on where you're at when your seasons fall. So you don't care about walking on their trails. You don't care about spooking them. You, this is the time that you can just stroll through the woods, still try to be quiet, still try to identify some deer and things like that. But really, you're looking purely for sign. You're not worried about any disturbances. And there's so much openness, you can identify things. This is the time to look for sheds. So this is where you find fallen antlers. And if you find antlers from a deer that have shed, it is almost impossible that that deer was killed by a hunter. Now, something else could kill that deer. There's other things that kill deer out there. We have a complete resurgence of of, of, of big cats coming into the United States, including black cats, uh, which I thought was a joke until I started looking into it. So there's, there's other things that kill deer. Cars kill deer. Poachers kill deer. Farmers sometimes get coal permits to kill deer. But in general, if you find the sheds of a large buck, that deer is probably going to be bigger this year. So it's an interesting way to kind of identify what's, what's going on in your area. You look for sheds, and that's just a, a fun pastime as well. And I found this. Let's say if you're out looking for sheds, what happens when you're looking for something that has a reward, like shells on a beach, deer sheds in the woods? You see a lot of things you would normally norm, never, normally never see. You're looking for a shed. You don't only really see a shed, but you, you see a rub, a rub where the tree's been rubbed by the deer's antlers. And, the, okay, wait a minute. That rub's on this side of the tree. Oh, wait, there's a trail here that I didn't realize. Okay, there's a bisection here. With two trails bisect? That's something you want to take note of, right? If you have three trails bisecting, that's literally, that's like a deer, you know, inner, you know, what they call it, a high five in Dallas, Right? Um, where you have like a major traffic intersection, you get three or more of those converging in one location. This is a high traffic area for deer. Now, a caveat to this, whenever I say there's like a high traffic area, or whatever, you got to pattern by the seasons and the activities and the time of day. It might be a major deer intersection at 2 a.m. in the morning. Doesn't do you a lot of good. It might be a major deer intersection right at the evening. You have to figure these things out as you go along. Snow is great because you have great visibility. So use that visibility. When, when there's snow on the ground, you can see really well. You can find tracks, et cetera. The best snow in winters for scouting, though, is the light snows. When you get that snow that's like a quarter inch, half inch deep, there's still leaves and stuff. You can still see markings in the ground and identify other patterns and things. Bedding areas are really, really evident when you have that light snow. But you still have all that increased visibility. You can see so much better when the snow's down. Now, you're going to find something a little off-kilter to a degree with your deer patterns in the winter. Deer are going to spend more time, especially in colder climates, like on the south side of hills, etc., than the north side. Their patterns are going to be different, but understand that a white-tailed deer's territory is relatively small. Uh, a, a, a white-tailed buck will generally have a, a, an area that they spend almost all their lives in of one and a half miles in diameter or smaller. So if you identify an animal in an area, it's probably going to stick to some part of that area, but their pattern may shift a little bit. That's okay because we, we, we are always ABSing, right? We're always, always be scouting. So we're going to be scouting throughout the year. We're just at this point identifying this is a deer area and that there's been a good survival rate especially as we get into late winter heading towards spring. If we see sign, if we see deer, if we see activity, the deer have survived the hunting season well in that area, and they've survived the harshest part of the winter, and this is going to be a good area. This is one of the things we're looking for. And we can really find our scrapes and rubs right now really easily because everything's open, so you notice the rubs and the scrapes. They haven't really healed up yet, so it's easy to figure out where the scrapes and rubs are. Uh, scrapes are where a deer digs basically a a spot out on the ground and pees in it. A buck does this, and a doe will come along when she's in estrus, when she's ready to rut, when she's ready to breed, and she'll pee in it and mark it and go off, and he'll track her down, and they will do the deed to make Okay, So we're looking for that because if we find rubs and scrapes in a common area following certain patterns, it is likely that whether that buck that did it, he might be be, uh, roasting at somebody's smoker right now. But if if there was a buck there last year, this is a prime area for buck breeding activity next year. And as we're getting into deer season, usually we're pre-rut to just at the beginning of the rut in most places, not all places, things change. And those deer are starting to move back into those areas to get ready for the rut in that bow season. So they're probably going to be back in there. Now, Bucks, many times, will travel secondary runs even though they have their scrapes and their rubs on the primary trail. They do this because they know the does are likely to use the primary trails and find their scrapes and rubs. But they also know that rival bucks and predators will be after them. So by using a secondary trail system, the buck is able to use the wind to his advantage. And if there's been a hot doe... On his scrapes, he'll know it. He can smell about 100 times better than a dog. He doesn't need to go to his scrape to know if if there's been a rival buck or a danger or a doe in his scrapes. He he can kind of circumnavigate that, use the wind to his advantage on that secondary trail. He can identify whether it's worth coming in and refreshing his scrapes, whether he needs to, to find a trail of a doe and track her down, or whether there's a rival. And he can check out what's going on and try to figure out who that rival is. Is the rival a lot bigger than him, equally matched, or some scrawny little little yearling he can run off? So these are intelligent animals, and this is the pattern they work. So we're looking when we find these scrapes and rubs to also identify the secondary trails that we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, And that's really a a spring thing where you start to really determine some of that because the bucks already start using those secondary trails, and I'll tell you why when we get to spring. Um, you're also looking for funnels. A funnel is one of the most valuable things you'll find, especially in woodland settings and in tree-line settings along fields. Deer, when they feel any pressure, want to stay in the cover. But there's certain patterns they need to move through, certain ridges they need to cross, certain areas they need to get to for bedding, for feeding, for breeding, etc. And when you find an area where your woods funnel down to a tight section and funnel back up, to a larger section, and you know deer need to move through there, with the short ranges of bow hunting, this gives you an advantage to be where they'll be. Because a lot of times you find trails, you find secondary trails, you do everything right, you set up in the tree and you watch deer walk past you at 60 yards in the woods, and you ain't shooting them with a bow. You're going to lay down 20 with a gun, and you did not get a single clear shot with a bow. The, sh- the, the smaller the confines of a funnel, the more careful you have to be with your setup, because they know this too. They're really on alert there, but it gives you the opportunity to set up better ambush points. So we're really looking in winter for scrapes, rubs, funnels, etc. We move into spring. This is where it gets really easy to identify secondary trails. Bucks are heavy on their secondary trails in the rut and in the pre-rut when they start their scraping. They are also heavy on their secondary trails in the spring because they're beginning the growth of their new antlers. And they feel vulnerable. They feel weakest. Imagine that you uh, are a concealed carry holder, and you carry a gun on you everywhere you go and you have for 20 years of your life. And now you have to walk through a really bad, shitty neighborhood, okay? And right before you do that, somebody comes up to you and takes your gun away from you. And they put something on your shirt that makes you stand out. They make you wear a pink shirt, you know? with yellow polka dots or something like that. Uh, Whatever would would get you into that mind frame. Like I really feel uncomfortable when a buck that just a few months ago had this great big set of pointed armor on his head now has these two little stubs coming up with a couple of Y's on them, and if they get hit, they hurt. This is how he feels. So this is where bucks start to kind of hang out together. They get into bachelor herds. They... They 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 don't want to really be around the does as much. They don't want to be seen, and they're feeling vulnerable. So they start. So you start getting a lot of activity on the secondary trails. So it makes and, and everything hasn't grown in as much yet. So you can start identifying. You'll find trails like you'll find like this is a deer highway, and then you'll find a trail that almost parallels it, perfect. And a lot of times. And again, wind patterns shift in different seasons. But in, in the fall wind pattern especially, when that that secondary trail is going to be used for, you know, has anybody been at my scrapes and my rubs, it's going to be downwind of there so that that, that deer can scent what's going on on that main trail and stay down. And the way a lot of these work, uh, you'll have them on the side of a mountain or, or a hill or up near a ridge that these primary trails are and down a little bit or up a little bit, depending on the terrain and how things work, there'll be these secondary less traveled trails. But you get a lot of, again, a lot of uh, uh, movement on them in the spring and into early summer, as the deer are, are, uh, the bucks, again, are feeling a little bit vulnerable. You also get does a lot of times moving fawns through some of these secondary trails when they're still very, very young. Um... Another thing is to still look for your sheds in the spring. It hasn't all grown in yet, especially early spring. You're still, you know, the mice haven't eaten all the ones that are laying on the ground, so it's still a good time to look for sheds. This is a good time to talk to farmers and landowners, but not use much of their time. They're out and about. They're planting their fields. They're doing work. This is spring planting season and stuff like that. So they're there. So, hey, we were looking around for for deer sign or whatever, but don't take up much of their time. Um, and this is like a good time to kind of prime the pump for, for fall, I'm sorry, summer, varmint honey, right? So, you know, this is the time if you live in the Northeast, uh, anywhere where there's groundhogs, you ask about, you know, hey, you know, do you have groundhog problems here? Maybe, you know, maybe we come back sometime and shoot some groundhogs for you, something like that. Uh, but it's a good time to talk to them as long as you don't take up too much of their time. Because again, they're out, they're on their land, they're around, they're easy to find. Um, It's also a great time to find the road less traveled on public land. Where there's public hunting available, there's often other recreational activities throughout a lot of the year. It's often places where yuppies take walks and things like that. It's the beautiful time of year. It's not hot yet. Everybody and their mother is out taking a walk. and You would think that hunters are different than everybody and their mother, but a lot of them are not. So if we spend time in public areas in this time frame and observe, especially places where major trail systems go through and stuff like that, human trail systems I'm talking about, you can observe the human activity, and you can say, okay, this is a constant stream of human activity. Hunters are going to go to the peripheral of this, and if I go one layer off of that, I'm in what you would call the hunted road less traveled by. So now I can start identifying areas and access points that coincide with the runs, the scrapes, uh, the leftover rubs and things like that that are just one level away from the major human activity and the secondary human activity. And this puts me into places where other hunters that don't know what they're doing, that blunder through the woods making noise, when they alter patterns of deer, the deer aren't going to go out to the primary activity areas. They're not going to go, then they're going to get driven out of the secondaries. They're going to go into these tertiary areas that you're trying to identify. This is hard to explain, but if you start looking for it, you'll know it when you see it. This is also very important to you rifle hunters on public land. These are the areas where all the yahoos push the deer into. These are the escape routes, the funnels, etc., you have to run a balance of this because deer are only so pressured in archery season. So a lot of times, if you almost find a boundary, like these boundary points, what are these edges? Where's like the furthest average human activity during these recreational activities? We go a little bit further than that and call that our our hunter belt, and we just go just to the edge of that hunter belt. And these deer, you know, because they're not being shot at, they're not being driven by twenty-five yahoos in orange and are used to some level of human activity, just gently move. That's why you see these deer walking 100 yards away from you and go, damn, if I was only there. Try to identify where that there is, okay, before you get there. And as you're doing this, what you're also looking for is, okay, this is a great setup. Where is a great setup 200 yards from here, 150 yards from here? Where are some other setups that work for this general area really well? So that you can already have all the prep work I'm going to talk about for your your early fall scouting done in those areas. So when you sit a tree and watch 10 deer move by, and they're just out of range, you have a place you can adjust to either be right where they were when you saw them, or to figure out where they were coming from and intercept them. Okay, So we're looking for these tertiary areas, these these human activity wild borders, the edge. Just like permaculture. Where is the point? Because the deer don't want to move all the way deep into the forest. They really I mean you think they do, but they don't. Deer are edge creatures, they like to browse. Right? And the mast isn't in full drop usually at the beginning of our tree season and stuff like that. So they're still eating browse. They want to be where sunlight gets in a little bit. Not in the deep dark woods a million miles away. There's not a lot of food for them in that environment in early fall. Okay, and and they're, again, they're just not being pressured enough to go without yet. Cause this is a gent, you know, archery hunting is a gentle pressure versus gun hunting, which is a heavy pressure on deer. All right. Summer. When we get into summer, we need to accept something. Deer move less. They don't want to be out. It's hot. Imagine if I put a fur coat on you and it was 98 degrees out. I said, go run around and play in the woods today. Uh, no. They want to go to where it's shaded. They want to stick near water areas where it's naturally cooler. They want to stay into lower lying areas. They want to move mostly at night, very early morning, and very late evening. What this does, though, is it starts putting them into refuge areas, and we're still not really worried about upsetting the deer that we're going to hunt four months from now. So if we start moving into areas and start jumping deer out of areas, okay, there's a deer and it took off. I really didn't get a good look at it, but... If it's in the middle of summer and I'm out fishing or something like that and I'm ABSing, I'm always being scouting and I, I push deer out of an area, if I go into that area, assuming it's not too thickly grown in with nettles and crap like that, um, I can probably find bedding areas really, really easily. And those bedding areas will still be the bedding areas they use later in the season because it's, it's like, it's like fishing if the fish came back to where they were always to, to hang out. So in summer, when the, when the rivers and creeks are low, all the fish go into holes. And that's how you figure out where the holes are. You can't tell where the holes are when the river's, you know, two feet high. But when the river's two feet down from normal, you can find the holes. Think of it like that. Since the deer are holing up, you can find the holes. And since they're spending more time there, they're leaving more sign there. So that's another thing to be doing in summer. Summer's also a great time to scout fields and edges at a distance. This is where you break out the binoculars, right? So summer is a great time because what deer will do in summer, since there's almost no mass left, they've pretty much cleared out the forest. As they get hungry, in the evenings especially, they'll work forest edges. That doesn't mean that that deer is going to be there four months from now, and that's a good ambush. It may or may not. but You have to pattern the animal in the totality of the situation. But in this summertime, the deer starts to get the rumbling belly. I need to eat. I'm acting almost completely like a ruminant this time of year. I need grass. I need greenery. They're going to work those edges, and they're going to start working them toward the end of the day when it's a little bit cooler, just like you would want to do. So this is a great time to find the open spots on the edges to scout for deer, mainly to start identifying population numbers and finding target animals. Like, that's a buck I want to go after. Oh boy, I need meat this year and I have a high deer limit state. There are a lot of those in this area. There's those, there's going to be bucks, but there's, there's, there's some meat filling to be done here. A lot of these things can be identified with that. Um, wind patterns, when you get into what I call EOS, end of summer. So there's, summer's three months, right? And it's actually more than that in the south. Um, but as you get toward the end of summer, you're getting toward, you're getting toward breaking out the 12 gauge, you go dove hunting. right? You're into the beginning of September. It's still hot out. But something happens about that time of year. Whatever the fall wind dominant pattern is, you kind of shift to it. So this is where you've started to figure out where you want to hunt. You've started to identify some ambush locations. And now you can start taking some reliable wind tracking information. Wind is usually this way. Wind is usually that way. You always have to check your wind every single time you set up. This is why it's a good idea to have two setups for the same shot, right? One on both sides of a run. If you can, especially those that use the advantage of a climbing stand, which has advantages and disadvantages. But the advantage is if I have two trees ready to go for a climbing stand and I come in and the wind is shifted today and it's blowing a totally different direction, I can move my setup to coincide with the wind. Um, you will never 100% get your scent undetectable to a deer. But if you have the wind at your neck... And a deer is in front of you, he's going to smell you, and he's going to freak out, and he's going to run away, and you're probably not going to put an arrow in him. So this is where we can start to get some dope chart information on the wind. It can change, it can shift, but it's starting to move into its fall pattern. So we can start to really think about fine-tuning our setups based on that wind information. Deer patterns will also be well-established at this point until the peak of the rut comes. If you are looking at September and your first day of deer season is around October 1, that 30-day period, if the deer are behaving a certain way, they're not going to be 100% the same. Deer change day to day. But the general overall flow of the pattern, if they're bedding over here, and traveling in, in, in the you know late afternoon out to this field to feed, and then feeding all night, and then going over to this area for some water before bedtime in the morning, and then they're traveling this route back to kind of a place to hole up for the middle of the day, that pattern is not going to you know, be the deer will walk on this path every single day. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the overall flow. If you draw a flow chart, deer are mostly in this area bedding here at this X, some of their primary feeding areas are A, B, and C. They're getting water at D, E, and F. And then they're returning through routes you know, 1, 2, and 3 to area X for their primary bedding. That flow is going to be very consistent from end of summer all the way up to and for parts of it through the rut. And at this point, we kind of start to get into a point where we're blending to. We're, we're, we're blending what is fall preseason. We've gotten an actual fall and autumn. With the end of summer. But this is a great time to make friends with your landowners. Hunters are not asking permission to hunt in the summertime generally. They're seeing to other needs. This is a time to go out and shoot groundhogs or prairie dogs or whatever. uh, To go out and talk to farmers and see if you can buy direct from them. When I have a customer and they want to ask me a favor, I'm a lot more likely to say yes. You know, this is when I go out and start saying, you know, when's your harvest? Do you do, do, you do direct sales? Do you sell meat? Whatever. Um, your farmers, your ranchers, et cetera, are very receptive to you buying from them. Now you have a relationship. Asking to hunt is a little bit easier to do. Um, this is also a great time if you're doing permanent stands. And some people have a big problem with building basically a treehouse uh, and putting a nail in a tree. I don't. Now, high-value timber trees, you shouldn't do that. That's dumb. You're ruining a high-dollar item. Trees can handle having a frickin' nail put in them. It doesn't kill them. If, that, if it did, there'd be trees dead in lots of places where there's not. There's right ways and wrong ways to build permanent stands. You should only do this on land that you own or absolutely have permission of the landowner, and they understand exactly what you're going to do before you do it. There is some real advantages to permanent tree structures. Deer- begin to just say that's just part of the thing. So if you have existing stands, this is the time to do repair. If you're putting in new stands, this is the time to put them in. Because we're still far enough away from hunting that it's not a new, weird, spooky, scary thing. Okay? Um, I want to talk a little bit about stand setup now, though. Especially when you're picking out a place for a stand in the, the summer, and there may be a lot less leaf on the tree by fall when you're hunting. If you go to today's episode, which is 1596, and you look, there'll be a picture that I pulled off Google Images. It's a bow hunter. It may have been done this way to make a cool photograph, but it is a perfect example of what not to do. The The guy's up in a tree, silhouetted by sky. There's nothing really behind him. You can see his bow, you can see the shape of his body, you can see the shape of his head. There are two primary things that deer key in on to identify threats. One is the silhouette, well, movement is what they detect, mostly. But one is silhouette, and two is eye contact. Never make eye contact. We'll talk about that more in a bit. But your your shape, right? When you see a person standing even 200 yards away on a hilltop with the sky behind them, your mind immediately goes, human. That's a human. That's a human shape. If that person, if you can't really identify color and shape at the distance, is curled up in a ball, like like sitting on the ground, like they're in a cannonball position on the ground, you might see a lump, but is it a rock? I don't know. But if it moves and the head comes up and an arm comes out, human. You don't need the full human silhouette. The head, the neck, the shoulders, the arms, certain pieces of the silhouette are enough. Pattern recognition, human. Deer are better at this than you. Deer are better at this than you. So if you're sitting, we call this being a lollipop on the stick. The worst place to set a tree stand to do this to yourself is the top of a ridge. If you set a tree stand on the top of a ridge, you are going to be a lollipop on a stick. Coming down off a ridgeline enough to hunt the side of the hill, so that when an animal that would be anywhere near in range looks at you, the hill is behind you. So I'm looking up into the tree, but I'm actually seeing through the trees into the ground behind me, using the elevation to my advantage. Much better for this. This is really important if you're going to build a permanent stand, okay? Because you're going to be you're going to be like stuck with it now. So that's why I brought it up at this point. Do not be a lollipop on a stick. You need to, when you think about setting up a stand, imagine all the leaves off the trees. Now, in archery season, a lot of times early season, you have plenty of leaf cover. Mid-season, you got all these different colors of leaves, but there's still plenty of leaf cover. Toward the end of the season, they drop. So the leaf of the tree that would silhouette the winter rifle hunter may not do it to you. But you need to know the timing of the leaf drop in your area to know, can I depend on that backdrop of of alder over there, for instance, or oak, being there to prevent my silhouette. But stay off the ridges with a tree stand. Uh, A little note, too, on tree stands. I'm going to talk a lot about tree stands today because if you're using a tree stand, all this stuff's important. If you're not using a tree stand, you're hunting from a ground blind or something. You don't need to know it, but you might need to know it if you end up in a tree stand, whereas there's not a lot to say about setting your blinds up any differently than anything else I'm going to tell you. You're still going to do all the other things I'm talking about for ambush, but you're not going to be so much worried about silhouette unless you set your blind on a ridge. You want something behind you. It's more important than something in front of you. If you put stuff in front of you but nothing behind you, your movement's still really, really detectable. Think about trying to spot a squirrel in a tree. You're moving around a tree, you're trying to, where's that squirrel hiding? What are you trying to do, even if you don't realize it? It, it, Your mind is like a computer, and it will immediately tell you, I need to get where light comes through the tree. If I can get light through the tree and that sucker twitches his tail, I got him. I know where he is. That's how deer are looking for. They're looking for any place that movement will be highlighted. And any time there's light behind it and empty space behind it or drastically different pattern, color, light levels, texture behind you, your movement sticks out. It's like screaming, hey, dear, I'm over here. Run away. Don't do it. And sometimes you're stuck with certain decisions, so try to minimize it. Moving into fall preseason. This is when we're a month away. This is where we want to start selecting our ambush sites. We want to determine this is where deer patterns are. This is a secondary trail. This is where the bucks are moving right now. This is a primary trail. This is where I want to set up. There's a secondary trail here and a primary trail here. The pattern of movement is east to west, and the wind will put it out. This is a bad place to hunt in the morning, but this is a good place to hunt in the afternoon because the deer are moving with with the wind at this particular time and I can actually get in this one tree and I can see my secondary trail and my primary trail and I'm 20 yards or less from both of them because they can have a convergence point. Bang on, I want a setup for that. If I find a place where I've got a secondary and a primary trail and they're running pretty much parallel and they kind of curve and meander and whatever and there's a pinch point where now instead of a funnel of trees I have a funnel of movement And they're, they're 40 yards or less apart. And there's a good tree or a good stand place or a good blind place in between those two paths. I want to know the wind and I want to know when the deer movement is right to put the wind to my advantage. But if I can set between those two, I've got gold and that convergence point. That's a checkpoint. It's like a way station for the buck. He's got his primary runs and his, uh, his primary rubs and, and scrapes there. He wants to come in and check he's gonna follow that secondary run hmm I smell I smell a rival I smell a hot dough uh, I, it's all clear I can go in and freshen my scrapes and I'm gonna sneak back around here and see if anybody comes in and jacks with my stuff right because I'm gonna kick its ass or I'm gonna find other place to go if it's a big boy this is the kind of thing these are they're smart but it's because they know what they know well they're not smart like you they're actually very specifically wired to specific behaviors. A buck is, I'm gonna kick some ass. Oh, wait a minute. That guy's a lot bigger than me. It's, it's pretty much that simple. I, I'm gonna go breed that doe. Oh, she's not ready yet. She won't have me yet. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm scared. It's, it's that they have such fine tuned senses and they are so programmed to stay alive that we assign what we call smart. And what they are is they're smart at their shit. They're not smart compared to a human being. They're not thinking, oh, that hunter's going to park over there and walk in that way, and he's going to set up in that tree so I know to avoid that area. They're like, it smells wrong here. Stuff's been moved around. I don't like this. I'm going to alter my pattern for a while to see what the hell's going on. And it's not even that... That's how we would use words to describe it. It's simply, scared, don't like this, not good, bad. What's happening? And at the same time, the does are here, I can't leave. Somebody's going to come get my does. And this is my home, right? Think of another way that the deer are where they get held to an area and they simply shift their movements in that area. That one to two mile circle that that buck calls home unless he's run pushed shoved out of there somehow permanently that's his home it's like some of you that go i don't like living in new jersey but this is my home my family's here my job's here my stuff's here my house is here everything i have is here that's how this the deer does not understand the totality of the world so if you understand that and then you could understand how outside influences will cause that deer to move Then you could say, he's not going anywhere really. He's going to be in this circle. If he's running on fear and still running on, I want to have my food, I want to have my water, and I want to have my does. Or the doe is thinking, I want my food, I want my water, I have to breed sooner or later, but I'm not really worried about that. I want the bucks to leave me alone until I'm ready, and then it's going to be one and done, because that's how deer are. They're not humans. But I also still probably have these little fawns following me around if I'm a mature doe, if I'm two and a half years or older. And even though they're not like nursing anymore, I still want to keep them alive. That's the mother instinct still there until she's pregnant and ready to drop and kind of shoves them off. And if they're young does that have lost the mother cuz she's been taken by a hunter or some other thing but they're you know they're they're coming into their first breeding season they're confused by this they don't know what's going on they want to stick together they're going to follow primary areas this is what these animals do and they'll do it right up until the yahoos come in dressed in orange and start screaming yo deer yo deer and trying to run deer drives and bang 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 boom pew. Right, until that happens they're going to stick very much to these patterns and all they're going to do is change their timing and their pathways through these areas this is what we're looking for when we're setting up these ambush sites understanding that and setting up multiple sites we want to clear shooting lanes even if we're using a climbing stand that tree is a good tree to climb really? bring your stand when you climb up it now look, where can you and where can you not shoot? People will often say, I'm going to set my stand up. People have never hunted before. And they want to shoot straight in front of the tree. So the stand, let's say, is pointing due north off the tree, and you're going to shoot north. Not happening. Tree stands are generally pretty small climbing stands. You've got to carry them around. You're standing on the stand. You go to draw back. Where's your, you know, If you're right-handed, where's your elbow headed? Right into the tree. Where you can shoot well is going to be from a little bit to your left and a little bit to your right with the tree directly behind you, all the way back to almost directly behind you on both sides. You're going to have a narrow funnel directly in front of you and behind you where you cannot shoot. So we don't need to clear anything there. And we don't need to pick a setup point based on needing to shoot into those areas. Now we need to decide where are my best shooting lanes based on the patterns, the the runs, the pathways, etc. What's in my way? One little twig. And an arrow's gone, and it's either missed or it's it's crippled an animal. This is where we're bringing some of the equipment I talked about—you know, saws and lopper saws and hand saws—and we're going to set that area up. I'm going to have a shooting lane here, 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 and here. And I'm going to—I'm going to—if I'm smart, I'm going to actually draw a sketch in my book. I'm going to have a little journal, and I'm going to call this site A, and I'm going to have all my setup spots. And when I come into that setup spot, I'm going to know things like. And I've talked about this in the, 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 the gear segment, but I'll have things like film canisters with, with buck or doe lure in them on cotton balls in plastic bags. And I know exactly when I go to this site where I'm going to set out my lures or set up a fake scrape or do a, a hanging lure or whatever it is. Whatever's going to, and sometimes it's not to bring a deer in. It's just, it's interesting. You know, doe and rut buck lure is my favorite lure to use even when it's not the rut because even young deer, even does, whatever, it's just like it's. They're not afraid of it, and it stops them. Like, they, like, what is? Why is that there? Without being afraid, you want the animal to stop so you get a good shot. Again, you're not sitting there with your your 308, right? Or your thirty thirty 30 lever action. You, you've got a lot to get done when that shot comes without being detected. So anything that distracts them is a good idea. So you clear the shooting lanes. If you use hanging stands, where you pre-hang your stands, you just go in and climb up into them, get them set up as close to but as far away from hunting days as you can, right? So when you're in public land, this is a really terrible idea because people steal. Uh, But if you have private land or what have you, people still steal and go where they're not supposed to, but it's a little bit easier to do. But the big thing is any tree you're going to rely on with a climbing stand, climb it, because you never know. You do not want to discover that this tree has a lean that you didn't detect or uh, a soft spot that you didn't know about in the dark at 4.30 in the morning on the first day of the season when it was your prime spot and you were never up it. So all the spots that you're going to climb a tree, climb the tree. Climb the tree, set the stand, identify any danger while it's light out, while you're not in a hurry, while you don't give a shit about making noise and you're not trying to be quiet, what have you, make sure it works. And note in your book exactly what the placement of the stand is, including things like... When you climb with a tree stand, I'm going to, I'm going to describe a single-part tree stand. If you use a two-part tree stand, it's a slightly different because you're using the top of the stand as you're, as you're basically like a chin-up bar. But a climbing stand that's a one-part stand, just something you stand on with no seat, you hug the tree, and you you point your toes down, and you pull your legs up, and then you set the stand. You make sure it's locked, and then you stand up, and you repeat this hug-and-pull process. And when you when you lock the stand in before you let go uh, fr- from your bear hug on this tree, you kind of play with it. You you move your feet back and forth and what have you. Well what you'll find is that like to be at the spot where I've cut my lanes and I'm high enough and I've checked it from the ground and I know that's where I want to be. It, it's it's uh, fourteen fourteen bear hug pull ups. Right, and so in your head, you're 14, and I'm probably in this area. And if you're smart, you've done some things I'll talk about in a second that you'll know you're where you're supposed to be. Okay, you think I just I'll know when I'm high enough. It's 4:30 in the morning. It's dark as shit. You're in the middle of the woods, and you're trying to be quiet. You won't. So having that in your head, like this is a 14 tree for me, right, is is a good idea. Um, test your shooting ability when you get up in that stand. You don't have to have your bow with you. You can bring your stand without your bow and whatever, but just stand up there and, and, and mock draw back. Can I draw? Is there anything in my way? Is there something in my face? Look up above you. When I go to when I go to draw and I don't have my bow with me, but my bow sticks two and a half three feet above my 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 uh, my draw not my drawing hand but my holding hand. Is there a branch up there that I'm going to go tick? Deer's gone. Clear all that shit out. Usually I carry like a, a small pack. So what I'm going to do up in that tree is if there's a perfect limb for it, I'm going to prune that limb off to be a place to hang my bag or wrap my bag around the tree or what have you. I like to take my quiver off my bow. I don't like to sit up there with my quiver on my bow. I usually put it on the back of my stand, but I might find a place to do that. Um, you might, if it's legal, put a hanging hook into the tree or put a hanging hook on the tree, one that straps around it and you're going to take that at the end of the season. It's probably not going to get stolen sitting 12, 14, 16, 18 feet in the air. No one's probably even going to see it up there. So they make these hooks where you can hang gear. So you hang that up in your tree, and it actually folds flat against the tree. Now, most bow hunters are pretty ethical. If they notice an area has been set up by another hunter, they're going to go look for another area. They don't want to walk in on you, and they don't want you walking in on them. So if there's some identification that, hey, this is somebody's hunting this spot, it's a good thing, all right? because um, you're less likely to, uh, t- to to be interfered with. I believe in setting up three times the number of sites you'll think you'll need. So if you think you need four, set up 12. And try to set up, so if I have position A, and I think this is a honey hole, I want B and C to be where I can basically hunt the same area 200 yards away. Just a few hundred yards away. Because that way if some some clown ends up in my stand, I can look at my book, and go, that guy is up, you know, like if I walk in at 4 o'clock in the morning, and some guy's over there smoking a cigarette, right, and I've had this happen, and scratching his ass, and, and talking to himself, and mumbling, and fumbling around with his crap, and, and sounding like he's, he's, you know, setting up for a D-Day invasion, I can look at my book real quick, pull my light out, and go, you know what? When he is up there, he's, these deer are not going to walk into him. And based on the patterns, they're going to, They're going to go this way, and I'm going to move to one of my other spots. I'm going to let him drive a deer to me, and it does happen less with bow hunters. Bow hunters are generally not incompetent, uh, or they don't hunt for very long because they give up, but it does happen, or uh, something else has happened, like, okay, it's the middle of the day. I'm going to set up for an evening hunt. I walk in, some guy's there mouthing off with his kid, and two of them are whizzing on my, my tree. That happened to me too. So they've peed. They got human pee stink everywhere. Deer don't like that, so now I'm gonna alter my move to one of those, those two other areas. So when I say three, for each primary, set up two that you would immediately be able to move to if site one is blown. This is like fallback areas for tactical positions. Right? It makes your life so much easier. You do this. Instead of having your day ruined, because now, okay, I was going to be in an hour before dark, uh, broke, and now I got to drive 20 minutes to my other site. I immediately have an adjustment. This, you can't always do this depending on the size of the area that you're hunting and what have you. And you might not need to do this if it's land you own or private land that you have permission to exclusively. It still makes sense to have at least one backup for every location. There's always something that can blow a site. There's always something can blow a sight. Like, you're up in a tree, that big buck comes, you make a mistake, he IDs you. He's not coming back there, but he's not going far. Remember what I said, I want my does, I want my food, I want my water, this is my place, man. So if I already have a secondary area, when I've blown it, that big buck that's been around a while, has been carrying those horns for three or four or five seasons, and he knows, man, no, I'm not going back there. If I have a backup area, he's probably going to be using one of those if I was smart about how I selected it. Or again, by having the backup area, I sit in my tree, I'm watching with my binoculars, I'm being very quiet, and I notice deer activity, and it's over a hundred yards away. It's likely that one of my, if I've selected them right, one of my two backup areas for that spot, now I can move, the next day I can sit up there, I don't have to make noise, I don't have to cut shit down, I don't have to I don't have to give my position away and push them right back to where I just came from. Right? Think before you adjust, though, because sometimes I saw the deer moving over here, and then it's like it's like um, office space, right, where the guy's in the lane, and the lane's not moving, so he gets in the other lane, and as soon as he gets in the other lane, that lane takes off. Sometimes that happens, too. But if you're pretty convinced, like, I just picked the wrong spot, and now that I'm sitting here, those deer are there, and they're patterning there, if I have a place to move to, I can make that adjustment without making noise. This is why it's not a bad idea when you say, I've got the perfect place, Okay, th- two weeks before deer season. Put all your camo gear on. Don't bring your gun or your bow or whatever you're hunting with so that you don't get popped by a warden for hunting when you're not supposed to. Just your gear. Completely quiet. And go sit there for a day. Well, not even a day. Go sit there. Get an hour to an hour and a half before daybreak. Sit there and sit there till about 9 o'clock in the afternoon. Just observe. And if you see an adjustment that needs to be made, you've got plenty of time to take it. Like I said, this takes time and patience to really, really do well. Um, this is also a time to mark your trails with what I call night tacks. You can do ribbons. You can do blazes on trees and stuff. But I'll say this. Even if you think it's okay to put a blaze on a tree, and I'm not so eco weenie that I think, like, oh, my God, you've scarred the tree. They don't last as well as you think they would, and they don't show up real good at 4 o'clock in the morning. Night tacks are little reflective thumbtacks. You put trails in and you can walk into your spots. It's a great idea to a few weeks before your season when you've got all your spots set up, show up one morning and walk into your spots in the dark. Actually do it before you have to do it because it sucks to be, you know, in there at the right time and all. You can't find your tree. You've been there 10 times this year, but you can't find it. Trust me, it happens because we're not walking down clear, defined paths, right? You know, we, we have these, these access points that we've made for ourselves to get into the stand without walking on the deer's path. And we're not, you know, just walking down the Appalachian Trail or something here. We're getting away from that to a degree. So it's not like you have a road to follow. It, 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 even though it's, you know, only 50 yards off this path, 50 yards in the dark is different than 50 yards in the daytime. You can't identify certain things to get you there. So night tacks are my number one thing. And the tree that I'm going to climb, I put like six of those on like all sides of the tree. So no matter what happens, if I get off my path, I can start shining around. And if I'm on any side with visibility to my main tree, I can spot it. And if I leave my gear to track a deer after I've hit one, it's a lot easier to find my way back to it at night. It just seems that a lot of times you shoot a deer right before it's dark out. By the time you find the deer and you're collecting your shit to get out of there, it's dark. So this helps with a lot of things. If I'm tracking a deer and it's gotten dark and I need to find my way back, if I've got that tree lit up with night tax, and other hunters are likely to identify that tree as being used by a hunter. And again... Bow hunters in general, not all, there's assholes in all walks of life, but in general seem to be a little bit more informed people, and generally if they spot an area someone else is hunting, they try to avoid it. This is your fall preseason. This is when you want to set up your game cameras. Uh, Again, beware of thieves. People steal. But this is a great time to set up your game cameras and start checking your game cameras. And where where are deer? Because this is the biggest thing I've learned from game cameras. It's not so much, there's a great big buck here I'm going to shoot. What I've learned is there is deer sign everywhere in this place at 2 a.m. This camera hasn't picked up a deer with nobody near it in daylight hours for two weeks. I'm not hunting here. But what I have identified with that camera is where is that animal coming from? And that allows me to adjust to a different location and say they're here Remember, I want my does, I want my food, I want my water, this is my home, okay? So he can't be that far away. This is where he is at 2 a.m., okay? Where is this animal at 6.30 p.m.? Or where is this family at 8.30 a.m.? Or where is this animal at 7 a.m., at the crack of dawn? And that camera says, don't hunt here, stupid, they only come here, they only come here in the dark, You can't hunt them in the dark, so this is a bad spot. That's like the number one thing I've learned from game cameras to actually practically use. Um, Or there are deer here all the time at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. This this makes no sense. I don't know why, but I know that. Now that I know that, I can adjust. Because normally, you know, 3 o'clock, something like that, Four o'clock after work, get off a little bit early to hunt for a couple days this week or whatever. That's the time to walk through the woods and set up your stand. Oh, not if there's deer there. So to me, the biggest thing a camera tells you is when. When it's happening so that you know that it's happening so you can adjust accordingly. Uh, but again, people steal this stuff. This is a great time to be testing and retesting wind patterns. There's people that have little bottles with talca powder and you shoot it in the air and it goes. My way of checking wind has always been simply you grab some dry leaves or grass or whatever, crumble it up and drop it and watch the way that it flows. It was good enough for the Indians. It's good enough for me. But check and retest your wind patterns. Make notes about your wind patterns. You will often find this. The wind is prominently from the west here in the morning. And it's prominently from the east here in the evening. Fishermen know that when you sit on one side of a pond and the wind blows in your face and keeps blowing your, your line at you and, and interfering with your casting and making your life a living hell and you move over to the other side of the pond, usually the wind shifts and blows in your face and does all those things again. Um, but what, what really happens a lot of times with fishermen is they're there in the afternoon and they decide the hell with this wind and they move and just as you shift into the evening hours, the wind changes direction, sometimes 180 degrees. So it's important to check your primary wind directions in the mornings, the afternoons, and the evenings. And then time your, your ambushes and your hunting based on the pattern and the wind movement. And this is the complicated part. Deer know this too. So a deer will walk down this trail with the wind in its face in the morning and know this is a good trail in the evening because the wind generally shifts. And sometimes deer that have been around a while will go, hey, it didn't shift today. And they'll try to find, they'll use a secondary trail where they can get a crosswind. Okay. Again, they're not smart, but what they know they're smart at. They're really smart at what they know and they know stay alive, use the wind. So a lot of times you can't necessarily set up so that the wind will be directly in your face and the wind will be, and the deer will be coming directly at you. But what you can do is use crosswind currents and things like that so that Yes, the deer might eventually sense you, but since it's coming from this direction, your shot exists before it can wind you. And all of this has to be adjusted on the fly, but test and retest your wind patterns. Scout early in the a.m. and late in the p.m. in this time of year, and this is really the good time of year to break out the spotlight and and, and go out and, and just after dark, identify deer. Identify the deer you want to target, quantities of deer, doe, doe herds, buck herds, etc., with lights if legal. I don't know specifically any state or area where it is illegal to spotlight deer, um, period. Now, there's times of year for some states where it's illegal. And like in Pennsylvania, where I grew up hunting, if you have a kid's toy bow and arrow in your trunk, and you get stopped by a police officer or a game warden spotlighting deer, they will do you up for hunting with a spotlight, no weapons. This means you guys that are concealed carry holders, in most states they would say that your gun represented a hunting tool. So, I know that's like just so constitutionally wrong, but you have to decide if you want to take that risk for yourself. Like, and it's weird because you're not, now I'm going to go out in a farm field or something in the middle of the night with a spotlight and not take my gun. Some states it would say as a concealed carry permit holder. That is not a hunting tool. You need to talk to your game department and find out how that shit works where you are, okay? Because this is a primary poaching method because deer are stupid in the in the night with a with a light on them. I've gotten almost close enough to touch deer when you do this to them, and I'm not talking about park deer that are fed or something like that. I'm talking about wild deer when that lights on they just lock up and freeze. That's why so many of them get hit by cars. So, but I love scouting with lights, following the law. Because it, it it just reveals, like, holy crap, are there a ton of deer here. And then we can start working backwards. If they're here now, where were they an hour before? If they were there an hour before that, where were they an hour before? How does this coincide with all the things that I know about this area? This is why this stuff works so much better hunting close to home. This isn't like, bow hunting isn't usually the thing you go to deer camp for, right? Like guys do with, with guns or whatever, Um Unless, again, you own the land, you have things set up, you have permanent tree stands, whatever, that's different. But if you're hunting public land, it really almost has to be close to home to have any real chance to succeed with all of these methods. This is also a good time to start setting up what we call mock scrapes, as long as it's not too terribly early. If you start putting scrapes out like a month and a half before the rut, bucks are like, something ain't right. Remember, they're not smart, but what they know, they know well. Like, that's not right. But if you start doing it like a couple, three weeks before the rut, they think, well, some dumbass, you know, year-and-a-half-old spike buck is doing this. Again, probably not with that rationale, but something's going on. And they start saying to themselves, I don't want a rival buck here. And if it's a bigger buck, he's thinking, I'm going to kick some ass. If it's a smaller buck, he's thinking, maybe I can kick some ass. And this is what bucks are always thinking when they find another buck's uh, scrapes. If he's, even if he can kick my ass, if he's out tending a doe and another doe comes along, he can only tend one doe at a time. It's not like an elk with a big harem, right? He's only go, he's going to go out and follow that one doe. They're going to do their breeding thing. It's going to take a day out of his time. I might be able to sneak one while he's away, even if I'm a little scrawny guy and he's a big guy. So when bucks find other bucks with scrapes, they want to know what's going on because it's either I need to kick somebody's ass or I might get to steal some on the side. Okay, So these are really, really effective techniques if you can get the timing right. If you can get like a week to two weeks before the, the, the bucks really start keying up, a lot of times this is later in your bow season, and you put in mock scrapes, this is when deer will come in to check those scrapes. This is when you might want to make some noise. You might rattle or something. One time on a hunt, what happened is we had a moss scrape, we had deer hitting the scrapes, and I sat up in a tree, and, and my uncle came in and like smashed a couple branches with his feet after I was completely set and totally quiet, and ran away. And it took like five minutes, and this buck came in like with stiff, shouldered, and his ass hairs sticking up, and like fuming, angry, pissed off. Like, I am going to kick somebody's ass like that. Looking around and tearing the scrapes up and all. I ended up not shooting that buck because he was a really small three-point, and and I'm talking northeastern three-point where you have like a spike on one side and a little wide on the other, and I decided to to hold out for a better deer. But I saw it work. So, again, you can get so many techniques that I can't go to, but that's kind of your fall preseason into actively hunting. So I want to talk a little bit now about the setup. So we've, we've done all this stuff. We've got our tree ready. How do we set up? I want to get to my, not, not my parking spot. Okay. Not the donut shop. I want to get to my tree one hour minimum before light, before you can see anything. And I, in the afternoon, If peak movement is around 5.30, I want to be there by 3.30. I want two hours early. Now, we have lives, we have jobs, we have careers, we have family. This is the ideal. This is your minimum ideals. If you can't do it, I'd rather get there a little bit late and still hunt the evening than not. But if I have the choice, I want to be two hours early in the afternoon, one hour early in the morning. It's one of the best things in the world with bow hunting, by the way. To to, to get into a tree kind of the crickets and everything quiet down because you've made some sound no matter how quiet you try to be. But as soon as you sit and stop moving, everything goes back to peace. Nobody knows you're there and you listen to the forest wake up in a way that you cannot do from the back porch of your cabin. You're immersed in it. Permaculture, we learn the forest is the teacher. And I'm telling you, if you do this, you will, you will learn things. That you cannot learn any other way. I feel so strongly about this. I would tell you if you've listened to this, this show for information purposes only and you don't really care about ever shooting a deer any time in your life, determine a place that you'd like to see the forest wake up, where maybe you could see a deer, or whatever is present in the area that you live in. Set up a place to sit quietly. If you don't wear full camouflage, wear clothing that makes you not stand out so much. Headnet and, and, and gloves are a great idea. Set up a, a, a stool in an area where your back is not exposed and go experience this, whether you do it as a bow hunter or not. Not in a tent, not on a lakeshore with somebody camping 50 feet away from you, not on the back of a... I mean, those are all great experiences, don't get me wrong, but in the the, 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 the deeper part of the woods, be part of it. And let it come alive around you. You'll even feel, I don't care where you are, a tiny tinge of primal fear. That's the prey predator instinct that lives in all of us. Bow hunting will just ramp it up. And I'm telling you, it's worth it just to experience it. The same way that you might decide I'm going to jump out of an airplane for the experience and have it for the rest of my life... You might choose to go bow hunting just for this. But if not, you can still have most of the experience by being there. You might even find it to be one of the most pleasant things and most meditative things you can do in your life. And you will find that, you know what? When I'm just getting totally stressed the hell out, when I've just had enough, I don't have to wait for a season to do this, you might find somewhere near your home a quiet place to experience this and just get up really early one morning and go out and listen to the forest come alive. If you're not hunting, you know, you can have a cup of coffee or whatever, but keep it locked up in the thermos until it's really lit up, and then sit there and enjoy that coffee, because if you can smell something, a deer can smell it a lot further away. Even if you're not hunting, just to see animals come in. I mean, just to give you a little bit on some of this stuff here, I've been sitting in trees and had chickadees, little chickadee birds, Land on my arrow and stare at me and go, What the hell is that? I've had them land on twigs above my head, hang upside down from their ass and look me in the eye and go, Oh shit, and take off. And it took, like, they make that eye contact and then they go. I've had squirrels run up the tree I'm in, stop, look at me and go, Huh, whatever, and keep going. You know, I've seen grouse drunk on fermented fox grapes in the fall drumming boom 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 that's mating behavior they're so drunk they think it's spring you know i've seen so many things by doing this you see it in the evening too but the morning's special so consider that as a side note um ignore ignore everything i'm sorry i skipped ahead because i've got so much to cover today i'm not to walk um i'm sorry again um Set up as fast and quiet as possible, and practice this. Okay, so I think again, like I said, you should go to your tree or go to your stand and get completely set up. And if you have any kind of game regulations, whatever, everything but the bow, then with, with, with uh, you know when there's no season going on, so that you can set up and you know anything that's going to get in your way, because you want to be as quick and quiet as possible and shut up. Okay, what 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 I actually have is STFU in the notes, right? Shut the F up when you, when you get into your routine. Um, don't, don't touch anything that you don't have to. Try not to walk on deer trails. Take a known path and follow your markers. You know, these are, this is how you go in. So you should know exactly what path you're going to take to your stand and take that path. Um, have your personal reti- routine down. Be ready to climb or use your climbing stand when you get there. Uh, Take your your time to practice this. Attaching your gear to your pull rope. Uh, Again, listen to the earlier show. You'll learn all about that. Get into your stand. Pull your gear up. Get set and STFU. Absolutely no noise. Okay. Assuming you've done all that, you're there, you're letting the forest wake up around you, you're being part of the forest, you start to be able to see her. It's the evening, and things start settling down, and the forest comes alive for its evening activities. And now we have a deer. We have a deer. It's coming in. We're going to get a chance to make that shot. First thing, no eye contact ever, period, infinity. I don't care if you're in a head net that has fully you know, netted in eyes, and you don't think your eyes can be seen. I can't explain exactly how this works, but you feel eyes on you, and the deer feel it more. And if eyes connect with a deer, it's over, it's gone, it's done. Even if it's through a head net. If your eyes and their eyes lock, there is a, an energetic level of connection. Now, if your your eyes are exposed and they see your eyes, it's over. It's over. But even through head nets I've seen it. No eye contact. You look around the deer. You look at the top of the head, the tail, the ass, whatever, to the side. Use your peripheral vision. Ignore all the BS on outdoor TV. You cannot talk. You cannot do anything. You cannot make any noise. You cannot have a wristwatch. You cannot play Sega. Okay. This is in a box blind with a feeder 150 yards away. This is a real archery hunt. A lot of the times you see these guys on TV talking to their cameraman and shit like that. It's either filmed after the fact to reenact it, okay, or they were hunting in an area where the deer are practically dad-gone tame. That's the only two ways. You can get away with this gun hunting in a blind at enough distance. It cannot will not, does not happen with wild white-tailed deer in the forest. If you say to your cameraman, do you have a good shot? Not that you would, okay? Because you're not going to be out there with a cameraman. But if you say, I'm just trying to explain, like, where you think you can do things you can't, it's over, It's done. That animal hears a sound. Even if it doesn't know what it is, it knows exactly to the millimeter where that noise came from. Those ears turn. That eye locks. And even if he goes and puts his head back down, he's on alert now. She's on alert now. They are not giving up. They want to know what the hell is there. And they're trying to, like, the only reason they don't just run away is because they're so switched on, they'd have to run away all the time, right? My food's here. My water's here. My stuff's here, this is where I live, the does are here that I want to breed, the bucks are here that I have to breed with, my fawns are here, whatever. That's why they don't just take off. Their their heart would explode if they took off every time something set them on alert. But once you set them on alert, don't think that two minutes later they forgot that that sound came from over there as they're getting a little bit closer to you. They might go back to normal behavior. They might not. But every possibility that you're going to get burned has gone up because you made a sound. You don't make a frickin' noise. This isn't fishing where you tell the kids to be quiet so you can get five minutes apiece. This is silence. This is why I do things like I take um, like like rubber material and I put it all around where my, my, my knock point on my bow is. So if when you go to knock an arrow or an arrow gets knocked off the the thing, it doesn't go tick. It doesn't make a sound. Everything is silent. This is why I do things like if I have a, a shirt that has a flap pocket, I'll tape the pa- the flap shut with, with tape that matches the pattern so that nothing flicks off it. This is silence period. When you have an animal approaching, you don't make that eye contact, you ignore the BS. What you want to do as this animal's coming in is long before you have to pull the, the draw the bow back. You want to ask yourself, do I want to shoot this animal? The quicker you identify this animal's a target versus this animal's not a target, the better the the likelihood that you'll get the opportunity when it presents itself. Because sometimes it's very very quick. So is this animal an animal I want to shoot? And everything's more complicated if there's more than one. Because everything I'm about to say, if there's two deer, and when you go to draw one snorts, the one that you had an opportunity for is gone too. So at certain points, you just have to take the opportunity and see if you can make it work. All right? So I've now determined, here comes this deer. And I'm going to actually go into a story now as I go through these of my first deer with a bow. So I was out to shoot a deer. As long as it wasn't a little baby fa- a fawn or something like that. A doe, good enough. My first my first hunt. I just wanted they shoot a deer. So this doe comes in. She's coming in from behind me on my right side. I, I kind of hear her, so I look back over my shoulder. I see this doe approaching. I'm standing facing front of the stand. So I've got my, you know, I'm at a center point where I can turn either way. And as this deer's approaching, she's far enough away. I can tell she's a big enough deer to take. I start really slowly with my feet, making no noise, rotating to my right side. So as she passes, my, this is perfect, because the tree's now blocking me. I'm on the leeward side of the tree. She's on the aft side of the tree. She can't even get close to seeing me until she gets parallel to me, but I can't get a shot at her until she passes that point because I'm going to be shooting straight quartering on That deer is going to see me, so I want her to come just a little past me. So I get to where I'm turned. Now I'm facing right at a tree. I've identified that I want to take the shot. Now, what I'm waiting for is for her to do one of three things. For her to pass behind a tree, a bush, some sort of cover where she's in motion and far enough that I know she's going to come out the other side. And I'm going to be drawn back and wait for the shot as she comes out the other side. Or I'm gonna take when she's in range and I can take a shot for her to look away for any reason. Or for her to look over her shoulder. Why do I put look away and look over shoulder is different? Because you might want to handle one different than the other. When a deer looks over its shoulder straight behind itself, it's usually saying there's more deer back there. It might be a buck. It might be a small buck looking back where there's a bigger buck. You almost never see like a 10 point buck walk through and then like, uh, like a four point walk behind him. It's almost always the other way, like, hey, you go first to see what's out there, right? And bucks like to follow does. So when they look over their shoulder, if you're iffy on this deer, you might want to wait and see if there's another deer, but you may lose your opportunity as well, okay? And also, when they look over their shoulder, you kind of, like, turn your eyes, turn your head really slow, look back in the way they're looking, and see what it is. You might identify it definitely as a deer that I want to take a shot at, or it's just other deer that I need to be aware of so I don't get burned when I go to make my draw. But in any event, you want to get the bow up if you can before this happens. Usually people don't sit there holding their bow ready to draw because you're there for hours. So if you're standing, a lot of times you have your hands on your bow and you have the bow resting on the stand. So as this is going on, Before that deer actually gets to where you're going to draw, if you get an opportunity, that deer's looking away, it's eating, it's looking over his shoulder, you bring the bow up. I've got the bow now in my, if I'm a left handed shooter, I've got my hand on the grip, the left hand on the grip. I've got my fingers or my, my uh, release. In, in hand, and I'm waiting for that look away, that movement behind a tree, whatever, and when I get the opportunity, I want to practice this so many times, I don't even have to think about it, I, as, as the bow is coming up, the arrow is coming back, in one smooth motion, this is the most likely point that I'm going to get burned, I don't want to bring it up and then draw, I want to bring up and draw, I want to come to my lock point, and I want to hold And now I'm waiting for whatever I need next. The animal's looked away, but it's, it's shoulders back. I'm waiting for that, 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 you know, that facing shoulder to go forward and open up those lungs. Or she's behind a tree or he's behind a tree. I'm waiting for two more steps. You get burned here different ways. You get caught. It's one thing, but all of a sudden this deer decides that's been moving through the woods nice and it gets behind this bush and I want to take, I want to have a party here for a while. And he just sits back there, it's not alert, it's looking around, it's eating, it's pooping, whatever, and it just won't come out. And you're sitting there and your muscles are fatiguing. This is why compound bows are awesome. You're holding 50% of the weight or less. When that animal comes out, when you get that shot, that's when you release the arrow. So in my case, here's how this happens. The doe comes from behind me. I turn slowly as I'm turning, and she's messing around and meandering and eating, and there's a couple other uh, does with her. Uh, I get turned, I get the bow in hand, I've got it up. She gets dead in line with me, and she knows something's wrong. She feels it. She looks around me, she looks over me. I am now not even looking at this deer. If she runs, I'm not going to take a running shot with a bow. If she moves, I'm going to hear her. I can barely see her back from the bottom of my eyes. I'm looking over her. We are not going to make eye contact. She starts moving on. The deer that are behind her are still far enough back that I've got the tree concealing me. I glance over my right shoulder just enough to verify that nobody's really on point. She goes behind a bush. Bow comes up. Wait. And she decides to hang out for a while. Just stops and looks around and looks back at the other deer. And I'm now at full draw. I'm more likely to be silhouetted, but I'm in a good position. One second, two seconds, three, probably about four or five seconds of, of just hanging out. Feels like a minute to you. And then she takes a step out. I've now got almost a shot, but the, the, the facing leg is back. The shoulder baits back. Don't really want to hit that shoulder blade if you don't have to. The left foot goes forward, head turns, looks right at like right at my area, but not me. Now, heart boom 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 boom. Oh my god, listen to that. How come she can't hear that? I can hear my own heart. Surely she can hear it. Now boom 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 in your ears. Now your muscles are fatigued. Now I've been at full draw for a while. This is why when we practice, it makes practice sometime to draw the bow, count to ten real slowly in your head, looking away from the target. Move your eyes back to the target. Make the shot. Train your muscles to deal with this. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, She's not looking at me. She's just looking around. Head goes down. arrow Arrow goes away. And you can see the bright color of the fletching just bury itself and go straight through this deer. And she just takes off. And when she takes off, you watch that animal until you lose sight and you immediately... Pick a spot. So this deer runs at about 40 yards. She's in enough thick cover that I can't see where she is anymore. There's a pine tree with a bunch of like woodpecker peckings on it, and I mark that spot in my mind. And I listen and I hear. Tune into part three to find out what I heard. Yep. We are going to now go and have part three on um, We've Released the Arrow. We have to track the deer. We have to find the deer. We have to deal with getting the deer back to a vehicle or what have you. We have to do all of this. And how do we do it? And often we're doing it pretty far from our vehicle as it's getting dark or it's all the way dark, which will be the case when we return for part three. I will not make you wait 150 episodes. I will do this episode part three next week for you. I can't do it this week. I've got two interviews lined up. I've got some other stuff going on. But next week... We'll come back with part three of this. And again, if you listen to this and you're not a hunter and you don't plan on deer hunting, I hope you consider at least experiencing pieces of this. Take a camera with you if you want to. Being part of the forest at this level is something that will teach you about yourself And it's certainly something that makes you more likely to be able to survive. Because you want to talk about situational awareness. This entire show was about situational awareness at a level most people never experience. I will be honest with you. You can experience a lot of it, but until life is on the line. Until I do this right, and I take this animal's life, or I do it wrong, and I fail. Or, if I fail miserably, I injure this animal in a way that is... To to me as a hunter, I feel disgraced if it happens. Then you will never be quite at that level of adrenaline. You'll never hear boom, 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 boom in your ear. You'll never hear like your pulse inside your ear. But it's still worth doing. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.